Volume. Previously on Too Many Enemies. In South Africa, there are a very diverse range of uh, motivations behind the, the assassinations. And there's also a very large, uh, for want of a better word, assassination industry. So there are a lot of hitmen for hire, quite literally. He came back with two guns, actually. The one was an AK and the other one was a handgun. Hoodler said that he got, um, they handed him the AK and then they followed the car um, was one and them to um, Pretoria. These guys move in, shoot, and move out. It's a mafia. That's and, you, and you're ultimately collecting money from people and using that money to hire killers to kill the same people. That's exactly. It is the 2nd of May, 2015, and we are at one of the most important boxing matches of all time. It's time. Two legends. One destiny. All roads end here. Mayweather Pacquiao. At the time, this was dubbed the fight of the century or the battle for greatness. It was Floyd Mayweather versus Manny Pacquiao. The reason why we are here for this story is actually because a particularly important South African is right here in the audience. South African Minister of Sports and Recreation at the time, Fakile Ambalula, is part of the audience. He went on to become the Minister of Police and is currently in 2021 the Minister of Transport. He's a Mayweather fan, having hosted him in South Africa the year previously. But how Fikile managed to allegedly fund his travel to get to Las Vegas to see this fight is more exciting than the fight itself. How did he get the funds? (laughs) Well... Of course, it allegedly involves the assassinated billionaire, Wandile Boswana. Welcome. This is Too Many Enemies. I'm Paul McNally. This is the final episode. In these six episodes, we have been looking at the assassination of billionaire Wandile Boswana and what his murder means for the state of politics, crime and justice in South Africa today. We pick up the story in South African Parliament in 2017, when Fikile was then the Minister of Police. Point of order, Chairperson. This is a video taken off of YouTube, which shows Parliament in session and laughter is beginning to break out. Is it parliamentary for the Minister of Police to have earphones in his, in his ears listening? Fikile is in the front row, white headphones firmly in his ears. He's smiling wildly with his mouth wide open. Continue, Honourable Member. Honourable Minister, please. Can you take your seat? 
the whole of parliament is now in hysterics. And Fikile still hasn't removed his headphones. Looks like he's enjoying the attention, laughing along with everyone else. Continue. House chairperson. House chairperson. Honorable Stian Hazen. Stian Hazen, speaking here, is the leader of the opposition. You may have ruled it's parliamentary to have his earphones in, but I wonder if he could explain to us whether he's listening to Beyonce or Casey and Jojo. Thank you for your sense of humour. Continue, honourable member. I bring this video up to show that Fekile is this larger-than-life figure in South African politics. He styles himself Mr. Fearfokol, meaning that he fears nothing. This is Makuda Safara. He's now the deputy editor of the Sunday Times, and he was the editor of the Sunday World, which is a newspaper that closely covers the Boswana case, particularly the connections with Fakile. Can I ask you just to put that on that? Right. Just on your lapel. I ask him, kind of meekly, to put on a lapel mic. Did you spray it? Um... No, I don't have any spray. Do you... okay. Despite me not having any sanitizer spray, Makuda graciously clips the mic to his chest and continues with his explanation of Fikile. How he speaks creates a, an impression of somebody who, who is fearless and how he dresses is also something of interest. If you Google Fikile Mbulula clothes, you'll get pictures of him smoking a pipe, wearing gold chains, and sporting some outrageously shaped prescription glasses. You just wear um, your Nigerian garbs, head to toe. Uh, his style is um, eclectic. He, he's unpredictable. But despite these eccentricities, Fakile is also a serious career politician. He was, at a point, the president of the ANC Youth League and... You know, people who lead the youth league uh, often are expected to rise in terms of their standing in the ANC and, um, and that, of course, is linked to their standing in government um, as a cabinet minister. As I said, he's occupied a number of posts. From the police, sports, to uh, the Department of Transport, um, where he's at now. At this point, let's go back to that boxing match from the start of this episode. It has been reported that Fakile had financial ties to Boswana, as in he borrowed massive sums of money from him. And one of these loans, because they were loans, was for a million rand, about $65,000. So Fakile could allegedly come to this boxing match to see his hero Mayweather fight and ultimately, spoiler from 2015, win. We don't know for sure, but the payment was made in 2015, shortly before Fakile and Tabo embarked on a controversial trip to Las Vegas to attend a boxing match. There was a million rand that was loaned to Fakile from Boswana. Can you explain a little bit about that and how that kind of came about? Fakile and a you know, TV and radio personality called Tibo Touch going to, to the U.S. to meet with uh, Floyd Mayweather. That was then done, according to the, to the records we had at the time. The information was that there were issues about the repayment of the, of the money. And that led to the two of them having some 
online exchanges of sorts. I think, you know, whether it's SMSs or WhatsApps, I can't recall at this point. The thing was then that the police became interested in the communication between the two because in their view, it happened in the periods leading to Bozwana's killing. So they became interested after he was dead? Yes. Yeah. Our extravagant boxing match was in May 2015, and Boswana was assassinated in October of that same year. It was reported by News24 that they had obtained court papers in which it is alleged that Boswana had earlier instructed a Bloemfontein law firm to pay Tabo Malefi, also known as DJ Thibaut Touch, an amount of one million rand. Now, this money was earmarked for Fakile. They just used Tabo's bank account according to the court papers. Tubo Touch, just for people who don't know, how would you describe him? Like, how would you describe him as an entity? Tubo Touch is a former DJ on the country's most popular commercial radio station. He hosted a, an afternoon drive show. Now, Fikile said at Boswana's funeral, among other things, he was a generous man. Now, he's saying this about Boswana. He was one person I could abuse financially, and sometimes for political reasons. He said this at his funeral. The police wanted to understand his um, interactions with Boswana. So in other words, they did a, an application to court so that they are able to access his, uh, his movements, um, access his uh, telecommunication exchanges uh, with Boswana and make an assessment on the basis of what they find, uh, how to proceed with their investigation. We contacted Fakile to respond to this podcast and his connections with Boswana, but communicating through his spokespeople, he refused. He said he wasn't able to comment on any of this. And though we don't have a response from him about Boswana, so you can get a sense of the kind of guy we are dealing with, here is how he responded when asked at a press conference if he was involved in state capture and the infamous Gupta family. And the fact of the matter is that uh, I owe nobody any explanation. It is the honours is on those who make such allegations to prove them. I'm not going to join the chorus which I know who's, which I don't know who is the conductor. I am in charge of my own destination. And I don't just dance to music that I've never composed. I compose my own sound. So for those who have composed the Gupta's chorus, let them sing for it. I'm Figilem Balula, minister of the ANC, appointed by Jacob Zuma, seconded by African National Congress. I'm here to address issues that relate to FIFA, and not that I'm avoiding that question, but for now, that is the issue at hand. I'm moving and I'm going ahead. I never feel that my reputation is at stake at any given point in time. Fakile's spokesperson accused News24, when they reported on all of this, of, quote, making a lot of unfounded speculations, end quote. According to her, News24 was, quote, trying to draw a narrative that the minister was the beneficiary of the late Mr. Boswana's businesses and that a loan was given to them for some trip to Las Vegas, end quote. 
Such claims are, quote, incorrect and absolute hogwash, end quote. Here is Makuda again, commenting on how the Sunday world, when he worked there, approached Fakile about the accusations. We did phone him about the claims and the information that we had. And the police had indicated that uh, they wanted to have a conversation with him. And he indicated that they had already had a conversation with him. And um, he answered all their questions and you know, he doesn't understand why months later we are asking him questions about that. But Fakile denies the loans completely, right? He, he just said that there was no money exchanged. Yeah, but the, there was a thing about SMSs. Umpu Beloy, you'll remember her as the woman who was in the car when Boswana was assassinated, was shot herself and drove them both to hospital. Here she enters the story again. The ex-girlfriend of Boswana did mention something about Boswana being upset and um, mm. having sent Fikile a number of SMSs, which is the thing that got police to be interested in Fikile's cell phone communication. So the police started tracking Fikile's movements. And I got to say, where he'd been going and who he'd been meeting was astounding. Here we are, and I'm arriving at Emperor's Palace. It's just outside by the airport. Um, it's a huge casino complex with restaurants, hotels. And walking past a huge emperor statue with a fake painted on blue sky with clouds. This is Emperor's Palace. The reason I'm at Emperor's Palace is to scope out where Fakile had a very important meeting with Boswana two days before he was killed. Here's Makuda again. Yeah, in the period leading to the, uh, to the killing of uh, Boswana, yeah. yeah, there was a meeting. But there was a third person at this meeting with Fakile and Boswana at Emperor's Palace. As I walk around, I imagine all three of them meeting in one of the conference rooms that peel off from the main casino floor. The third person at the meeting was, <laughs> and I still can't believe it, Vusi KK Matabella, one of the co-accused on trial for Boswana's murder. But the police discovered that this Vusi KK is implicated in the in the murder of of Boswana, but that the minister Fikili has had communication with this person who is implicated in the murder. Mm. And so it became a thing that, that required uh, further investigation. The cops wanted to know if it was a coincidence that Fikile had money troubles with Boswana. And then Boswana dies. And that Fikile is in communication with one of the people who's alleged to have had a role mm. in the killing of Boswana. The coincidences uh, required, I imagine, to the police a further investigation. Now, Fikile's lawyers have made it clear that while he was questioned by the police, he was never a suspect in the murder. But the question remains, why would a senior minister be at a meeting in a casino with a billionaire and the person who would later be put on trial for his murder? Fikile's explanation 
is as follows. Fikile did explain that uh, there was a friendship between them, but he didn't want to go into detail. So, you know, it just left too many questions unanswered. You know, Bozona was his friend and Keke is his friend. Fikile so, is friends with both these men. Yeah. Yeah. And so if the three of them are meeting, um, why must we read anything um, into that? As far as we can tell, Boswana hadn't been paid the million back at the time of his death. Umpu Beloy said in an extended statement that the meeting at Emperor's Palace did happen and that she saw Vusikeke at that meeting. And it did come out in court that Fakele called Vusi on the day of the murder. But of course, the contents of those calls is not known. And then this idea that Fakele was going to turn KK in mm-hmm. when he got the warrant of arrest. Is there something in that? And he never did that. Do you think that yeah. that's some, I mean, that's kind of a curious thing to be like, if they were friends, that he was going to claim that he was going to turn him in. What, what yeah. do you make of that? Fikile at the time was the minister of police. Mm. Um, so it means, you know, he had some kind of influence um, in um, operations or something. And the police were struggling to get hold uh, or to find this keke. And there was a thing that, but keke and the minister um, have some kind of relation. So if, if they are struggling, are they really struggling or are they not just getting through to him because he has a relationship with the minister? Um, and I, I suspect, and this is my own interpretation, that Fikile, looking at that and knowing that he has access to this fugitive, then said, listen, Mr. Officer, uh, I'll get you this guy. And that never happened. I mean, you can interpret that in many different ways. Whether he, he said that and that has had an effect of demobilizing the police uh, who are looking for his friend because the police sat and hoped that their boss uh, will bring this guy in. Busi KK eventually did turn himself in. The conversation with Makuda turns to a few moments of reflection concerning how serious all of this is. It would be concerning if um, many of those things are true. And it would be worrying if a, a minister sitting in cabinet has a relationships with, uh, with hired killers. And it's, it's important to get to the bottom of the matter mm. so that if Fikile is not involved in any of those things and that the connections between him and Vosi and other people are just coincidences, you know, then he must, he must be cleared and, and the police must indicate that, you know, the minister is not involved in any way. And if he is, and if they, they prove that um, he had any role or that the monies owed between, you know, the parties influenced um, anything that had to do with Bozwana's killings, then there must be consequences for his actions. Time for a quick update. Vusi Keke and his co-accused returned to court in November 2020, 
Zelda Fenter, who we spoke to in a previous episode, is there reporting on the matter. They are still going through the cell phone records between the co-accused, just like when I visited court in a previous episode, and something is revealed that is a huge blow to the state's case. Warrant Officer Fenter testifies that the co-accused did not communicate via cell phone on the day of the killing. This is despite Sipo Hudler's confession to the contrary. He said in his statement that Vussi phoned him on the day and said, quote, we must still carry out the job, end quote. Though, like we've said before, Hudler has claimed that his confession is untrue and that the police forced it out of him. I went back to private investigator Mike Bolhais, who we met in the first episode, to get his opinion on if Vussi KK will be convicted. The chances of him getting, getting out is... I, I, I don't think it's easy. Really? And, yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't think it's easy. And the chances of being more cases being added against him is very good. And the chances of him being found guilty is great. Okay. Because all of us working on this case together is a, is a very effective, non-corrupt mm. group. And you're confident with the police that you're working with that they're not corrupt? Yeah, we wish we could work with... with Every single case like that, but yeah. uh, unfortunately, you, you just can't. But in this case, I'm extremely confident. And on top of that, the political side of the case involving top ANC politicians, will we ever see an arrest? The accusations and the evidence have simply been left hanging in the air. some final reflections on assassinations in Africa, I visit Jenny Irish Korboshin, a researcher for the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, at her house in Johannesburg. Well, let's talk about South Africa first. Do you think yeah. it's at a critical phase? It's becoming a greater and greater problem. I don't want to say it's not fixable, mm. because, because what does that say? But I think that at least we start looking quite seriously at a whole lot of things that link into the assassinations. Obviously, the work that, that people like the Zondo Commission, etc., are doing plays an important role, but also looking at, the, at, at different areas where it's happening. So the taxi, the taxi sectors and start having a serious review of what's going on there, and also looking at things like the gangs, but also looking at the availability of firearms, the criminal justice system, corruption within the criminal justice system, then I think it, it's going to become more, more and more difficult for us to deal with it. But I don't want to say we're not going to be able to deal with mm. it. The nature of violence in those areas is beginning to change and we've seen quite targeted assassinations. So if you take the taxi industry, for example, over the last couple of years, we've seen an increase in the number of assassinations, targeted assassinations. So what about the broader work in terms of you've done with Mozambique and Zimbabwe? How is that different from South Africa and how is it similar? A lot of it is very politically motivated. What you're seeing in Zimbabwe is a link between the assassinations and some of the abductions, the people that are involved in the abductions, torture of community activists, etc., etc., also involved in some of the assassinations. Some people don't survive those abductions and torture. Other people are released and it's used more as an intimidatory. But what we're seeing is it's very similar people that are involved in those. And they are incredibly heavily armed. And for people who don't know about the abductions in Zimbabwe, if it's people in Europe, or uh, can you explain a little bit about that? Okay, so you have people arriving at homes, at people's houses, and abducting them at their houses, at their, at this, at, from, from their homes, 
and, and taking them from their homes. Heavily armed groups of people, often carrying assault rifles and very heavy firepower, which in the Zimbabwean context is quite difficult. It's not as easy to access, for example, as it is in South Africa and mm. Mozambique. And very often those people are people that would be speaking out on particular issues, social issues or political issues within, within the country, maybe broadly described as human rights activists. And in some instances, those activists would be taken and held and tortured. And in other instances, they wouldn't survive the, the abduction. And it would, it's not just a random thing. It's people that are being targeted, often abducted from their homes or places or, 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 or places of work, etc. And there have been allegations that, that those people have got, the people doing the abductions and the assassinations have got quite close ties with people within the security services. Jenny then moves on to the assassination crisis in Mozambique that we looked at in a previous episode. In Mozambique, I think it's, it follows a slightly more like South Africa trajectory. So you do have some political stuff taking place, but you also have some stuff which is related to corruption and, and general crime, people involved in investigating, investigating that. I think in all three cases, what we're finding is that the people involved in these assassinations are quite heavily armed and that we're not seeing a tremendous amount of them being arrested and prosecuted. It's an odd case rather than, than, mm. than, than the general rule. So to me it feels like it's the several different facets that you need to attack to kind of solve the assassination problem. It's exactly. not like even if you put a lot of energy into it, you can't hit it directly. It's kind of something that's yeah. systematic in lots of different ways. Yeah, I mean, even if you take out some of the people involved in the assassinations, unless you deal with the people that have ordered the assassinations, the people that have been behind the assassinations. I mean, the most recent case would obviously be of, of Kinnear's assassination in the Western Cape. Charles Kinnear was a police officer who was allegedly investigating a gun syndicate within the police. Allegedly, his investigation was a threat to the criminal underworld and a corrupt police network. He was assassinated in September 2020. Jenny says to solve a case like that, you need to look at numerous factors that surround the assassination, not just the hitman. There's a lot that goes on that, has, that is behind that, that assassination that needs to be dealt with. And I think that that's what we need to be looking at, not just getting to the bottom of who carried out the assassinations, which is important, but also looking at, at in what context are people being, being assassinated and, and, what is, and what is happening about that context with regard to the criminal justice system. Mm. I asked Jenny who within the criminal justice system is actually working on this problem. I think there are people within the criminal justice system and those people themselves become targets, um, mm. as happened with, with Kinnear himself. And the South African criminal justice system has a better record of kind of catching people for their involvement in this than, say, the Zimbabwe and Mozambique. So I'm just using South Africa as an example. Um, a lot, of, a lot of the focus seems to be on arrest of the person that, that carried out the assassination mm. within the criminal justice. And we'll get to the bottom of this, but getting to the bottom of it often means being able to report your success in terms of arrest. And I think we need to look at it beyond looking at the whole networks that are involved in, in, in commissioning these assassinations. There is also a worst case scenario which we could be facing. What I find very concerning People involved in the criminal justice system and police officers and that are no longer safe from assassinations, then, then we're heading down a very dangerous path because people are going to be scared to undertake certain investigations because of the consequences. And then we could land up with a situation like you have in some Latin American countries. <laughs> <laughs> 
We end this series at Boswana's grave. He was buried at Moycliffe Heights Cemetery in Pretoria, but according to the Sunday World, there's been a raging family fight to have his body exhumed and moved. There is a demand to have him buried next to his father and other family members in a cemetery in Kuruman. That's over 500 kilometers away in the Northern Cape. It's Boswana's widow who is against the exhumation. Benedict, Boswana's brother, told the Sunday World, the way he is buried in Pretoria, it's like he's lost and without family. We have our own cemetery, and according to culture, he must be buried there with his father and other family members. And this ongoing feud around Boswana's resting place seems to epitomize his entire case. The push and pull of all these players, some of them incredibly high profile, and yet little resolution for an assassination that was so public and so violent. been listening to Too Many Enemies. This podcast series has been produced by me, Paul McNally, and podcasting company Volume. It's brought to you by the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime in partnership with News24. You can find out more about the Global Initiative by visiting globalinitiative.net. That's globalinitiative.net. We would also like to acknowledge Supersport, the author of the advertisement heard in this episode. The advert was originally posted on YouTube on the 24th of April, 2015. The music for this series was composed by Oman Mori. This episode was mixed and mastered by Gwinch Sarame and Richard Rumney. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. Volume.